Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning. It's Friday and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week we tackle a specific policy subject and we have guests on the show who are experts in the fields. I'm John Olson, one of your hosts for this morning's show, and sitting next to me is my co-host, Chris Chapp. Our show today is on continuity and change in Minnesota demography. We often don't notice the ways the population is changing, but believe it or not, Minnesota is experiencing remarkable shifts in where people live, birth rates, immigration patterns, and so forth. The French philosopher Auguste Comte is credited with coining the phrase, demographics are destiny. Well, this may be a bit of an overstatement, it is certainly the case that who lives where in our state will shape public policy for years to come. The causal arrows also likely move in the other direction. Public policy choices at the national, state, and local level have a big impact on Minnesota's demographic landscape. Our guest today is the perfect person to help us unpack all of this. Since 2012, Dr. Susan Brower has served as the Minnesota State Demographer. She also directs the Minnesota State Demographic Center. Dr. Brower holds a doctorate in sociology from the University of Michigan, where she specialized in demography and family sociology. She also holds a master's degree in public policy from the Humphrey School of Public Affairs at the University of Minnesota and an undergraduate degree in social work from St. Olaf College. Before joining the State Demographic Center, Dr. Brower worked as a researcher on the Minnesota Compass Project at the Wilder Research Center in St. Paul. She also worked at the Population Studies Center at the University of Michigan. Dr. Susan Brower, welcome to Public Policy This Week. Thank you for joining us via Zoom this morning. We're sorry you're not in Northfield today. I'm sorry, too. Thank you so much for having me. I love visiting Northfield whenever I can. Uh, so, Dr. Brower, uh, we, we have a lot to unpack this morning, a lot to cover. But before diving into this question of continuity and change in the state of Minnesota, maybe you could start out by talking a little bit about your job description. What exactly does a state demographer do? You know, broadly <laughs> speaking, in what ways does your work inform public policy? Sure. So broadly, our job is to keep track of how the population of the state of Minnesota is growing and changing and the population of communities within the state. So we make population estimates of thousands of cities and townships and for counties each year to help distribute uh, state funds to local communities. And then we also make population projections to help Minnesotans in the public, private, and nonprofit sectors plan for what's ahead. Uh, we do special analyses to help people understand how the state is changing with respect to where people live, how old the population is, how diverse it is. Um, and then we look at how Minnesotans are faring with respect to social and economic indicators, too. So we really are just trying to take a broad scan of the state, uh, but focus on uh, those population numbers, how we're changing. Um, so state leaders, including legislators, state and local government leaders, nonprofits, business uh, leaders, all use these data um, to tr to hopefully make informed decisions uh, about who lives here today and what our communities will look like in the future. So that's kind of what we do in a normal year. Uh, when the census comes around, we fully focus on educating people about the census, making sure people are filling out their forms, uh, and helping the Census Bureau with local data so they can take a good census here in Minnesota. 
And, and so that's, so that, that's it in a nutshell. <laughs> and, and that leads me to, to the next question, actually. I'm, I'm sure you draw on a lot of census data in order to inform your analysis and all of your, your recommendations. Um, but without getting too into the weeds, I suppose there's a lot of other data that you draw on as well. Could you just kind of give us an overview of the, the type of information that you're using to, to make your, your recommendations and, and draw your conclusions? Sure. So I would say probably 80% of the data that we use is actually coming out of the Census Bureau. Um, part of it that comes from the decennial census, which is done every 10 years. But another big piece of that is from the American Community Survey, which is an ongoing, enormous survey of the U.S. It's happening all the time. It used to be the long form of the census, mm -hmm. but now it is put in its own survey that happens throughout the year. Um, and that's really where we get most of our information about how people live together in families, um, about housing, about economic and work kinds of variables. Those are, the, those are the sources that we turn to from the Census Bureau. In addition to that, we, take, um, we make use of administrative records. So we look at birth and death records to get a sense of how quickly we're changing uh, because of those factors. Uh, but really, it's the Census Bureau that provides most of our data. Great. Thank you. Um, you know, asking how is Minnesota changing is probably too big of a question. In fact, it might be the worst question ever asked on public <laughs> policy this week. Uh, but but it might be useful to our listeners to to start really broadly and then drill down from there. So, sure. you know, where is the Minnesota population growing fastest, slowest? Are there are there some broad kind of bullet point changes um, that 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 you see as you as you look at at change in Minnesota? Yeah, and and um, the answer probably won't surprise you <laughs> that the growth is happening in metro areas and urban areas. So looking at the last 10 years, between the last two censuses, 2010 and 2020, 78% of the state's growth happened in just the seven counties of the Twin Cities metro. So the bulk of the growth is happening in the largest metros, but it's not only the metros that are growing um, in, in the Twin Cities. It's also, you know, Rochester, Moorhead, Mankato, and then and then cities like Northfield um, are growing as well. But I'd say the, the bulk of that growth is happening in the larger metropolitan centers across the state, both in the Twin Cities and in greater Minnesota. The parts of the state that are losing population also probably won't surprise you and that uh, tends to be the agricultural areas, the more rural areas of the state that have been losing, slowly losing population for many, many decades. That continues uh, to today, that we're continuing to see those trends unfold. Um, the only thing I would add is that the metro growth that we saw in the last decade really amped up. <laughs> so mm -hmm. we knew that metro growth was really going to be important last decade. It was um, even more important than it had been in past decades or even greater growth than we had seen in past decades. Um, and in particular, in the, in the center of the metro areas, in the urban core, we saw a tremendous amount of growth as well. Uh, the state population, that's gone up about, what, 400,000 since uh, the 2010 census? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Okay. Uh, 
is is Minnesota kind of unique in this respect regard to the urbanization trend, uh, or does that pattern sort of mirror other patterns around the country? No, we look very typical <laughs> compared to other uh, other states with metro areas like ours. Uh, if we just look at our metropolitan areas, uh, metros across the U.S. have been leading growth and rural areas have continued to decline across the U.S., so we're not unique with respect to that. Um, I would say, you know, we've really seen this uptick in growth in Minneapolis and St. Paul in the last decade, and that also isn't unique across the U.S., that the urban cities in the middle of the metropolitan areas have seen increased growth during the 2010s, Um, you know, Part of that is led by the preferences of the millennial generation who wanted to live downtown in lofts. Um, but some of these shifts have started to abate a little bit with um, in other metropolitan areas as um, that generation has moved into home ownership and parenthood and, and figured that maybe the lofts aren't as as um, good of a fit as perhaps they were when they didn't have children and weren't owning their own homes. And so what we've seen in other metropolitan areas in the U.S. is that growth has spread out to nearby suburbs. Um, You know, we've seen strong growth in suburban areas as well, um, but we're still kind of watching to see if that Minneapolis growth is going to kind of spread out. Now, you're you're the Minnesota state demographer, but are we seeing these same kind of trends in Wisconsin, Iowa, and the Dakotas, the major or the larger cities like Madison, Des Moines? Are they getting more people moving towards them as well from the the rural communities? Um, yes, I would say that um, not necessarily within the st- – well – the Dakotas are different, <laughs> North Dakota in particular, just because of, of the pull, the economic pull of what's happening um, around the, the oil and gas industries. So um, that's a little bit different, a, a little bit different trend than that agricultural kind of moving toward metropolitan areas. I would say if we compare ourselves to other Midwestern states, um, we we are a little bit different than other Midwestern states, and that is because we we have this large metropolitan area that continues to pull in people um, from abroad, and we did see stronger growth in Minnesota than we have in other metropolitan areas, except for those the Dakotas that that were kind of um, outside the realm of those kind of normal patterns. So, it's helpful to think about some of these different causes and how economic incentives in the Dakotas is going to make a difference in some of the patterns we're seeing. Could you help explain some of the changes that you're seeing in Minnesota specifically? Is it just a matter of demographic change like, um, you know, an aging population in rural areas, birth rates? Um, Is it people moving from more rural to more urban counties? Um, or are these patterns tied to economic and educational opportunities, availability of jobs, et cetera? That's a really loaded question, a really big question. But I'd say absolutely they are tied to economic opportunities, and especially over time as we've seen um, f- agricultural areas um, 
be able to support fewer workers. And as there's been more opportunities in the regional centers and in the large metropolitan areas, we've seen that movement over time of the younger generation to these areas. So that's not a new story at all, but what um, listeners may not kind of fully um, appreciate <laughs> is that um, there's a lot of movement back and forth between those rural areas and the urban centers, the metro areas. Um, you know, we see young people move for college. We see them move for job opportunities. But we also see them move back when they're in their 30s and have their own children. The group of folks who tend to move back to their rural communities when they're a little bit older tends to be a little bit smaller than those who initially moved away. Mm -hmm. So what you get is is it's not like a, a one-way exodus or something from these from these rural areas. It's really a lot of movement back and forth. And on net, what you get is fewer and fewer young people, which means eventually fewer and fewer babies, which means you have an aging population and it's really hard to grow in those areas. So I get... I guess, you know, to understand the growth dynamic of rural areas, it just kind of helps to know that there's a lot of movement back and forth, and part of it is tied up with where people choose to have their families or where they're able to have their families and support their families economically. You know, we're sitting here on a Zoom call today, which just makes me think, you know, <laughs> maybe the way the workplace has changed um, in the last couple of years uh, might be influencing some of these patterns a little bit. Is, does any of that show up in the data, or is it just too small of a group to really see anything? I will say that everywhere I go in greater Minnesota, this comes up, and, and people are saying, we know people are moving here. We we have, you know, we've met them. <laughs> they're going mm -hmm. to our church, or they're, they're, you know, coming to our grocery stores. We know that the patterns have changed. There is a lag in our data, <laughs> and so it's really hard to pick out at this point. You know, um, we really only have a first look at 2021, which was really dur fully during the pandemic, and um, 2022, which is maybe a little bit after, but it's really hard to tell if those patterns have turned around. What we do know is that we still have a large percent as of the most recent data 2021 we have a large proportion of people who are working at home much larger than were before the pandemic came and so i think you know there there may be something to that but we just don't have the data to say to point to and say yes this has happened uh and we could see it happen right after the pandemic but i'm i'm watching for it so <laughs> Uh, Dr. Brown, I don't know if you've ever heard of a group called uh, Lead for Minnesota. Uh, the executive director is a young lady named Benya Kraus. But uh, okay. the goal there is actually to attract people who grew up in, in rural communities around the country, and, and specifically here in Minnesota, uh, to get them to take their expertise as, after they've gone through college or whatever and bring it back to the rural communities and reinvest themselves into their local communities. So uh, that's, I think, some of what you might be seeing is, is the work that they are they're trying to accomplish with uh, uh, Lead for Minnesota. Uh, let me ask you this. Do, do patterns of migration factor in here in any significant way? I mean, uh, immigration to the United States is a, is a big political issue right now. We don't want to talk about the politics side of it. But, you know, the, uh, immigration for new Americans, but also people moving from different U.S. states, are we losing Minnesotans to other states, or are other states moving here to Minnesota because of our quality of life? 
Well, on net, we tend to lose people to other states. Mm. Um, so there's about 100,000 people who move into the state each year and about a hundred and, oh, I don't know, 10,000 or so that move out. <laughs> so first thing that's important to know is there's a lot of movement in and out. And on net, you know, it's really actually in any given year closer to a loss of about 5,000 people in any given year. We've seen a couple of um, years where we've really lost a lot of folks to other states in the, since the pandemic, and, and we're hoping that doesn't continue. Um, but in general, over time, since about 2000, we have been kind of a net exporter of people to other states. And that's not unusual for a Midwestern state. Uh, the states in the southern U.S., in the southwestern U.S., tend to be kind of those who are, are pulling pulling young people in, and um, that's just the pattern that's been set up over many decades. Is is Minnesota luring people uh, from any particular you know neighboring states? Or other? I, I ask this as a as a Scani um, who, who relocated <laughs> yeah. a number of years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I didn't know that was I didn't know that was the term. So my my husband apparently is a Scani too, and now I'm going to call him that. <laughs> yeah, it's I think it's sometimes a derogatory term, but um. <laughs> okay, I won't, I won't, I won't. <laughs> Good to know. Depending on the circle um, you're in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the people who come to Minnesota and and where they're coming from, and also the people who are leaving Minnesota, where they're going to, we're really um, swapping a lot of folks with the the states that border. Uh, people tend to move, uh, make short moves rather than long moves when you're just looking at general migration patterns. So it's not surprising that many of our immigrants are coming from Wisconsin, from Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota. Um, you know, that's that's a typical pattern. And, and we're sharing, you know, our folks are leaving to those states as well. Um, most people who are moving are in their late teens and early 20s. Um, and so kind of if you think about if you think about the people in your life who are that age and think about why they might be moving, a lot of that is due to college choices mm -hmm. and college affordability and college, you know, where they were able to, to get into college. Um, a lot of it is just, you know, that's the time of, of your life when you're expected to move. You don't have a mortgage. It's You're not moving a whole family typically. And so, um, you know, that's where the bulk of the moves are happening. And so if you want to think about, you know, what's what's causing some of these patterns, you know, talk to a 19-year-old. Sure. You'll, you'll have a better sense of that. Sure. Are, are we also seeing uh, retirees leave the state, or are they staying here because of the quality of medical care and things like that? So uh, we do see retirees leave the state, and when we look at where they're going, it also may not surprise you. <laughs> they're going to Arizona, and they're going to California and Florida. Um, we see a net outflow of people around retirement age, and we tend to see a net inflow of people when they get a little bit older in their 70s or 80s. Uh, so presumably that's, that's uh, the older generation moving back either moving back home or moving back to family. Um, but, but that kind of pattern flips around, around 75, 80, and we see more people coming back. Well, age is one sort of subgroup, but could you drill down into the data a little bit and talk about patterns across other subgroups? Uh, I'm specifically thinking about different racial and ethnic groups and um, 
you know, growth and different, how, how do these patterns play out uh, among different groups of Minnesotans? Yeah, so if we think about kind of growth attributable to different um, racial and ethnic groups, um, all of the growth that we saw in the last decade is attributable to BIPOC groups or populations of color. Um, and I say that because uh, the white non-Hispanic population declined for the first time in our state's history by about 50,000 people between 2010 and 2020. Um, that's true for the state overall, but it's also true for many local communities. Uh, Rice County, for example, mm -hmm. uh, the white population between 2010 and 2020 declined by about 3,000, but the populations of color or BIPOC populations in Rice County grew by about 6,000. Uh, so that growth in, in Rice County was fully attributable to uh, growth of populations of color. And people tend to think, well, who's moving in, who's moving out? Most of the growth that's happening and most of the demographic um, racial and ethnic changes that are happening across the state and even within the state in specific communities are happening just because of the way that people are living and dying in their own communities. So we see a loss of 50,000 people at the state level, not because they necessarily moved away, but because they moved to the great beyond. We have a lot of older <laughs> uh, white uh, residents mm -hmm. in the state. They tend to be the ones who are in the high mortality age groups. And so we're just not seeing the same level of growth, the same number of births that we saw in past decades to counter that increased number of deaths. And then for BIPOC communities, they tend to be younger. They tend to be in the parenting ages. Um, sure, migration helps uh, international and domestic migration helps increase the diversity of the state as well. Uh, but a lot of that growth is just happening uh, because of, of residents who are already living here, who you know have been born here and who are having children now. And that's, that's how we're becoming more diverse as a state and as, as communities. Are economic opportunities and educational opportunities um, equitably distributed across different subgroups in the state? Is that something that, that your data can speak to? Yeah, no, they're not. And, and that's, um, you know, s specific to Minnesota. You know, I know many of your listeners will know that um, the disparities that we see between BIPOC populations and the white non-Hispanic populations in the state the gaps are larger than they are in other states. Um, and so that's kind of un a unique problem that many state leaders and, you know, nonprofit leaders have been, have been focused on for a very long time, even more so uh, in, in recent years since there have been, you know, issues with um, police brutality and, and so forth. Uh, but I would say that this is an issue that, that people have been focused on for a very long time. What we're seeing in the data is that those disparities remain, even through our most recent data points through 2021, for example, we still see very different rates of, of poverty uh, for populations of color, you know, two and three times what they are for the white non-Hispanic population. But what we have seen over the last seven years or so is that we've seen those poverty rates decline, we've seen employment rates increase, we've seen more 
full-time work. We've seen higher earnings for populations of color. So things are moving in the right direction. Some of those gaps are narrowing, but they're still there and they're still really big. So I think we don't always hear about the fact that, that as the economy has grown over the last, oh, seven years or so, and as we've had a really tight labor market, um, that there has been improvement <laughs> in the in the picture, uh, but it's still it's still very much real and and very much um, an issue. Thank you. You're listening to Public Policy this week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080, FM 95.1, broadcasting from downtown Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Chris Chapp, and my co-host, John Olson, and I are talking with Susan Brower, who directs the Minnesota State Demographic Center. So in our next segment here, we want to talk about a few specific policy points that are closely tied to Minnesota demography. And the first one that jumps out to me is redistricting and representation in Congress. Um, and I know you talked earlier about the importance of filling out a sentence, uh, the, the, the census, and, and this is one way that that really matters. Uh, Minnesota was very close, uh, if I'm not mistaken, to losing a congressional seat in the most recent round of redistrict, redistricting. Were you surprised yep. we kept our 8th district? And is it is it too early to look ahead to the 2030 census and make projections? You know, I wasn't surprised. I was very happy. I was very pleased. Um, but I had been watching those numbers probably closer than anyone uh, was watching them for Minnesota. And so I knew for 2020 that we were within reach and that it was going to come down to how well Minnesotans responded to the census. Um, you know, it's it's uh, the formula for apportionment um, is not just about how Minnesota grows, but how it grows relative to the other states mm -hmm. in the United States. And so um, I had been very, very carefully watching our growth year after year as we approached 2020, and I knew <laughs> that there is some error in those estimates that we get in between censuses. I knew that states are going to respond very differently to the census, and so I knew it was possible, even though, even though everyone was predicting it, it couldn't happen. I knew it was possible, but I was really happy because I didn't know for sure that it would happen. We ended up keeping um, that that 8th Congressional District by just 26 people counted. Oh. And my mom um, ordered me a cake with, hooray for 26. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't know if anyone else got a, a cake about that, but I 26 sure candles. <laughs> yes, 26 candles. Um, and and part of why we we kept that seat, or maybe all of why we kept that seat, was because of Minnesota's great response to the census. So we had the highest self-response rate in the nation. 75% of households responded on their own without a follow-up visit from an enumerator. The national average was 68%. Some states were as low as 57%. So, you know, you can, you can see that, um, you know, you get a very... <clears throat> very different um, count, even though there's there's a numerator follow-up, you get a very different count um, depending on how how thoroughly people respond to the census. Have those census resp response rates changed over time? I know in the world of survey research, you know, we're looking at really dwindling numbers with, with phone yeah. surveys and the, and the like. Um, is it getting increasingly difficult for folks to fill out a census or, you know, sometimes there's mistrust or distrust in, in these institutions. Could you, could you talk a little bit about that? 
and how maybe how Minnesota yeah. is able to buck that trend too. <laughs> yeah. So you're absolutely right. And that was something that we have been watching with, with the census. You know, we knew that, that it, people ha- are tired of filling out surveys. They do it when they go to, you know, Chipotle and they do it everywhere. They go <laughs> tar- target, wherever you go, there's a survey afterwards. And so it's hard to kind of break through all that noise and tell people that, this is the, if you're going to fill out one survey, this is the one you should probably you should probably fill out. Um, this particular census was even harder, I think, because there was a lot of um, there was a lot of concern by residents who didn't feel safe. Um, there was a proposed citizenship question at the mm-hmm. last minute, um, which you know later was was found out to have been you know put there intentionally to reduce response rates, which I think is is a real concern um, for for the neutrality of the census. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's, it's gotten a lot tougher. And I would say what happened in Minnesota in 2020 is that groups started organizing around this issue, this very nerdy issue, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they made it really a... Uh, um, a civil rights issue. They understood that that um, this was a way to be visible, to be counted, to to be included in political representation. So I think people understood that. We gave them the time and the information that they needed, and they really took it from there and and were able to generate um, those those high response rates. Uh, so another follow up question on the on the census from twenty twenty. Uh, Minnesota's federal congressional districts didn't really change shape all that much uh, after the 2020 count. Uh, A little more pronounced at the state legislative level, however. Can you make predictions or projections for how the changing demographic patterns we're discussing uh, might impact the state house and and the state Senate moving forward? Yeah. um, So there is a momentum to growth. And so we would expect that we'll continue to see metro growth uh, moving forward, barring any kind of massive change to migration, um, so that could happen. But if we're if it's business as usual, we expect to see the Twin Cities to continue to grow. Um, you know, the Rochester area will continue to grow, and so we would expect that there will be kind of a shift toward those areas in terms of political representation, as is supposed to happen with uh, population shifts. Um, it's uh, you know, when we project populations forward, a lot of what's happening is just, you know, where people are living now and where they're having children, as I mentioned earlier. And so that's how we know there's some stability and some momentum to the growth that's already happening. And so I would expect that by 2030, we'll, we'll see some of, of what we saw in 2020. Um, we just don't, don't know exactly how much uh, that shift will account for yet. And are we so you mentioned Rochester in addition to the Twin Cities? Are we also seeing that kind of growth in Mankato and and Duluth certainly and St. Cloud? You know, St. Cloud, yes. Uh, the the Fargo Moorhead, yes. Mankato, yes. Our large metros. I think Duluth is is probably the one exception so far. We did not see the same level of growth in Duluth in the last decade that we saw elsewhere. Um, but you know, we're we're continuing to watch to see. Um, you know, if that turns around this decade. I, I have a, a, a relative who's actually a realtor up in Duluth, and she's been selling houses like hotcakes uh, <laughs> really? to, bu- okay. to buyers from, like, California and other places. Yeah. Future climate refugee uh, people, I think, maybe. Well, we'll see. 
Uh, a few weeks ago, yeah. Chris and I talked to several experts from the Minnesota tech sector, and they stressed yeah. the importance of a skilled and educated workforce uh, for the future of the various industries and certainly for our state. What types of changes have you noticed here, you know, drilling down into the data? What are the big growth areas in the Minnesota labor force and which areas might be hurting a little bit right now? Well, part of what we do is we make projections of how many people, how many workers are available uh, to fill these jobs. So we really pay attention to kind of the supp supply side of that equation. But I do, I do pay attention to, to the demand as well. But I will just start by saying that all of our industries, all of our, almost, almost all of our occupations are hurting right now. And that is because the labor force has halted its growth. It's done that because we have the baby boomers who are retiring. We don't have as many young people entering the workforce because we didn't have uh, the same number of babies 16 years ago. <laughs> and so we've got this really depressed growth of the workforce. And what's happening is we've got really pretty strong economic growth. Businesses want to expand. Um, there's there's increased demand in the healthcare um, sector mm -hmm. as, as those baby boomers age as well. Um, and so that's creating workforce shortages across many different industries. We're seeing it really across the board with most of the um, job vacancies being in industries and occupations like retail, food industry, healthcare, some of which are good paying jobs that allow you to support a family and, and other, others of which uh, less so. How does Minnesota, when you say we, kind of compared to other states, is Minnesota pretty similar to, to some of our neighboring states or um, are yeah, we doing better um, or worse, I guess, with, with respect to, <laughs> with you know, respect preparing, to the work a work, yeah, preparing a workforce or work, yeah. I'd say in terms of so in terms of the workforce shortage, um, we actually have one of the most severe shortages, mm -hmm. and that is not only because of the labor force leveling off. That's happened really across many different states, but it's because it's paired with that really strong economic growth, that really strong demand for workers at the same time that we're having that leveling off. So I think, you know, we we stand out. Uh, compared to our peers in terms of the severity of the labor force shortage. Uh, in terms of preparing people, um, it's kind of a, a mixed bag as well. Um, we tend to have one of the most educated uh, workforces if you look at bachelor's degree or higher at educational attainment. And that continues to rise. We, we continue to be at the top cluster of states um, of, of folks with, with a BA or higher. Uh, but then if you look at, you know, who's completing high school on time in four years, um, you know, those numbers are a little bit more concerning. We have, I think it's close to about 84% of Minnesota high schoolers who graduate on time in four years. And we, we'd really like to see that number higher. So I think, you know, it's, it's pretty complicated to get your arms all around what, what employers need. On some dimensions, we're doing okay. I'm sure there are things that that we need to continue to um, step up to keep up with the changes. So COVID was sort of a seismic shift uh, in a yeah. lot of different ways, changed a lot of things. Uh, too many Minnesotans, frankly, the illness proved to be fatal. 
Uh, for others, it might continue to affect us at a behavioral level. I, there are a lot of people who get long COVID. Uh, this, they're still working on the statistics for that. Uh, working remotely has become much more popular these days. We talked about it a little bit earlier, but are you seeing other kinds of COVID effects in the Minnesota demography data? And if not, that's okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely um, the increased number, the, the excess deaths um, due to COVID were estimated for Minnesota to be around 17%. Those tended to be older people, so it doesn't have the same ripple effects through growth because those folks uh, likely weren't having uh, children. And so that's really kind of the engine of our growth is, is having having children, the births. Um, so I would say that, you know, looking at how we organize uh, ourselves around workplaces is really the, the big shift that we talked about related to COVID. I would say that that's, that's a huge impact uh, and we're still kind of waiting to see how that shakes out. I think, you know, people are still kind of make slowly making their way back to um, to their office, and so I'm not exactly sure where we will land or, um, you know, how much we will return to normal, but it appears at this point that, that there is no returning to, to the way that we organized ourselves around work before COVID. Yeah, the, the, the commercial real estate developers and managers have been in a bit of a panic lately uh, yeah. <laughs> because yeah, of the, yeah. the changing uh, work uh, conditions. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm John Olson. My co-host Chris Chapp and I are discussing continuity and change in Minnesota's population with Dr. Susan Brower, the Minnesota State Demographer. Dr. Brower, your office produces all sorts of Interesting projections about what the future looks like for Minnesota. You know, you're projecting, for example, net decline in a lot of Minnesota counties. Um, but obviously there are certain things you can't project for as well. You know, something like, as John just mentioned, a global pandemic, uh, which, which we didn't anticipate. Um, so, so given this I, I, two-part question, I'll, the first part is just how spot on are your estimates? Uh, I'm not trying to put you on a, on a hot <laughs> no, seat no, here, but but historically, are you you know are these things pretty accurate, or or is there just is there just a lot of error um, around any estimate that you that you just can't deal with? Um, so a couple things. Um, when we project for big populations like the state. Mm -hmm. Um, our projections, our, our inputs, our assumptions are pretty stable over time. It takes something really big, really big, like a, maybe a pandemic, to throw off birth rates, death rates, rates of migration. That's what we base our projections on. So when you're looking at a big population, they tend to be pretty accurate. We're required by the legislature to update those projections every year, um, so we never let them <laughs> get too old. They're constantly updated sure. as as things change. So it's a little hard. It's a little hard to know how how wrong we would have been when we're always putting out <laughs> new updated projections based on you know the the latest uh, population data that we have out there. You know, but there are big things that can disrupt um, projections. And, and I would say climate change in particular mm -hmm. is one that we know is going to change migration patterns at some point in the U.S. Right now, you know, we've got the largest population centers and the most people moving to where there is the scarcest supply of water. <laughs> and so we know at some point that these 
these um, patterns are going to change. In fact, we're starting to see that in California. Some of these patterns change some of the movement out of California. Um, and so, you know, how that impacts Minnesota, we don't know quite yet. Uh, but these great big, you know, pandemics, um, you know, natural disasters, um, these kinds of things can impact um, a, a population projection. And, you know, they're, they're not outside the realm of possibility, but, um, you know, we just we update them as as they come. In, in recent memory, are there other things? It's, it's actually fascinating to think about how climate um, might affect population and, and, yeah. and potentially make Minnesota more attractive. Um, I, I suppose in the long run, um, other things that might matter. I'm, I'm thinking about like the 2008, um, financial panic and other things in our lifetime that, that have, you know, maybe altered, uh, uh growth rates, um, in, in Minnesota. You know, what we saw during, you know, the, the great recession is that, Birth rates declined, uh, but then once we had economic growth, they didn't really bounce back to where they had been sure. before. And so, you know, I think we're on this long-term trajectory of lower and lower birth rates. I don't expect that to turn around. Um, again, this is one of those things that you can talk to, you know, people in their 20s and 30s and ask them, you know, how many how many children do you want to have? And it will be very, very unusual it, it will happen, but it would be very unusual for you to talk to someone who says, I want 13 kids, <laughs> or talk to a lot of people who want 13 kids. You know, um, most people are going to say two or three or none, um, and, and that's how we get that very, very low birth rate that, that doesn't change that much. It changes a little bit with the economy, but it doesn't change that much over time, and that's really one of the largest factors that drives our population growth currently. Um, you know, how we fare economically compared to other places, that's going to be important because that will drive migration to us or away from us uh, if we have more economic opportunities, more economic stability. That may be an important uh, economic driver of population change, but in terms of the births, those, those seem to be kind of moving along toward decline on their own regardless of what happens with the economy. This might be inviting too much speculation since you said sort of in, you know moving on their own but that just makes me think that there's something out there is it are we talking about um you know cultural changes just with you know and the the desirability of of large families are there um economic things going on where you don't need as many kids to work on the farm um is it is it you know one's confidence in the ability to raise a large family and pay the bills when there's you know, inequalities and things like that is it, maybe yeah. it's not any one thing that's driving those birth rate changes, but I'm just kind of curious what, how, how you would speculate on that. So my, the way I think about it is how you described it. So thinking about it in terms of the longer term economic underpinnings, the cost mm -hmm. of having a child relative to earning, um, earning a, a wage, um, when, when, uh, when there were, uh, not wages when when we were just working on on farms, <laughs> the cost of children was very very low. And as uh, we were required, especially to leave the home and to enter the workforce and to um, pay for childcare, that increased the cost of of um, having additional children. So that's that's part of it. But I think there are also kind of norms and preferences. I think it's a big package of those economic, social, cultural um, um, 
preferences and um, conditions that are moving us toward lower and lower birth rates. And this isn't just Minnesota. This isn't just the U.S. This is really kind of a global movement toward lower and lower fertility over time. So we just finished up uh, the state legislative session. Uh, I think all the final bills are heading to Governor Walls for signature. Uh, the Democrats pushed through a pretty ambitious agenda, and depending upon your party or partisan affiliation, you probably either love it or hate it. Uh, but without question, the policy environment has definitely changed. It's very different now. Uh, paid family medical leave, higher gas taxes, uh, changes to all kinds of different things in our in our society. Uh, legalization of marijuana, which I think was being signed today. My question is this. Can, can policy developments like this uh, have broader demographic uh, impacts? Uh, do policy changes, you know, do they fundamentally affect who lives in this state or who wishes to move here? Uh, do, do people move around based on taxes or social policies, things like that? Uh, do, can, does the data tell us this? People... People tell us that they move around due to taxes, <laughs> but the academic research has not found that. And when you look just at the age pattern of migration, again, it's those teens and 20-year-olds who probably are not paying much attention to the tax rates because they don't. It, it doesn't affect them yet, right? Mm -hmm. It affects you when you're older and you have something to tax. So um, I would say that in general, um, policy probably impacts some some demographic changes kind of at the margins with respect to family size so you know if people have two children and are deciding whether or not they can afford to have a third the child tax credit might might help them they might decide um but you know it's not going to be a massive shift um in demographic change because of because of any kind of uh state policy um, even though it may it may make life um, easier for folks, it may change a few people's minds, but but it probably won't fully alter the patterns that we're seeing. I would say probably the biggest impact that the legislature can have on demographics is to kind of create conditions that promote economic growth, which is a greater pull for immigrants from abroad and from other states. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so um, really to kind of create that that economic growth and not to stifle economic growth is going to be kind of the the types of policies that will create future opportunities and pull people into the state. I, I wonder too about um, incentivizing higher education and creating yeah. a more attractive <laughs> educational environment in the state, um, particularly yeah. when it is these 18, 19 year olds uh, that end up end up moving here. Yeah, I think that that's something that's really important, and we don't often think about higher ed policy as uh, workforce policy, uh, but I think the, the legislature, legislature should kind of really consider that connection. Um, you know, there's uh, South Dakota State, for example, has a program that helps with tuition reimbursement if um, if uh, students who move there stay there mm -hmm. after they've graduated. So they help reimburse. And I think there's a, a, a stipend as well. And what we've learned in southwestern Minnesota is many of the communities around there ha are losing their, their children to South Dakota because of those policies. So I think in, in some areas they certainly can make a difference. And I think we need to understand that, you know, 
young people are making the choice about where they're accepted into college, where it's affordable, where they have the programs that they need. And so we really kind of need to start thinking about higher ed policy as, as an important piece of our workforce uh, policy moving forward. Uh, as a follow-up to that, on the skilled labor front, I, I noted that the state legislature doubled the amount of money going to some of the skilled labor training programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's, what was it, roughly about 30% of all the kids that graduate from high school in the state of Minnesota every year, they don't go on to college. Uh, they go into some sort of a, a you know skilled labor or other, uh, other career path. Uh, so is that the kind of investments you're talking about in different aspects of the workforce, uh, skilled labor certainly being one of the areas where the demographics indicate that we are desperately in need of people to go into the skilled labor workforce? Yeah, I mean, I think there is just a, a range of need today that there wasn't even five, ten years ago. It's it's really become painful, not only for employers, but for communities when they don't have uh, the the their needs being met, whether it's, you know, to keep their, their buildings and, and homes in good condition or whether it's to care for older adults uh, or vulnerable people. I think the the importance of having workers is starting to really become clear to folks as as this is happening and you're you're pointing out an issue that it's not just about higher ed it's not just about college migration that that um you know we need the full broad spectrum of of workers to be able to kind of have the kind of communities that i think we want to have we don't want to have older adults that that aren't being cared for and that is going to require you know probably higher pay and some incentivization for for more people to to work in those fields a question that circles back to your role as state demographer um you have a lot of insight into how minnesota will change in the coming years and why what's your message to the public on a radio show like this besides take the census? Um, <laughs> maybe I took the wind out of your sails with that one, but, but what do you want the average Minnesotan uh, to know about their state? Well, I think right now what I'm seeing is even though many of these things that we've talked about today are not um, seismic shifts, these are slow moving shifts, we're at a point now where we're really starting to feel the impact of them in a way that we weren't 10 years ago. And so I think that there's a lot of disruption that's coming um, and that's maybe already here with the workforce shortages as they are. Um, and, And that can be scary for a lot of folks. It can be, you know, unpleasant for employers, especially uh, but I think for the general public, it means that there are there's there's a possibility to put into place more institutions, programs, policies that we couldn't ten years ago because we didn't have to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I feel like even though this is a time of disruption due to some of these demographic shifts, it, it it's also a time where we can try to make things better for for more folks and so I I guess I would just view some of these demographic changes not as dire even though they they are forcing us to change some of the ways that we do things Um, I think it means that we can still um, be innovative and probably even have more license to to try things that we couldn't five ten years ago I think what I'm what I'm hearing from you, as we've talked about it throughout the show today, 
when we when we talk about this issue of demographics, we really need to think strategically about this, right? I mean, not, it's not a five-year kind of a change. You're really thinking more about terms of generational changes, 20 to 25-year increments. Is that a good way to think about demographic changes? Yeah, they're really slow. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're so slow. And that's part of why I love demographics is because it's so predictable. You know, even even with a global pandemic, birth rates, they changed for about six months and then they kind of went back to their the trajectory they were already on. So a lot of these things, you know, as, as you open the show, you know, some of this stuff is destiny, but the way that we respond to it doesn't have to be, <laughs> doesn't, isn't predestined. We can choose how we want to respond to some of these changes. So I, I think that's kind of the takeaway that I'd like people to understand is we, we can't change many of these demographic trends, but we can, we can change how we realign with them. Sure. Well, I was really struck by your example with South Dakota, incentivizing people to move there. I've never thought as, as a college professor, usually we don't think about like, you know, fierce competition for 18 and 19 year olds. Um, but that's exactly, you know, what they're doing and a, a small maybe policy investment uh, early on is going to maybe make a change that'll show up, particularly with declining fertility rates, changes that'll show up 15, 20, 30 years down the road. That's right. And as a mother of a now 20-year-old who has gone through the college selection process, I can tell you that that decision comes down to opportunities that are right in front of you mm -hmm. at the time and, and that you're aware of. And that's true of, you know, that's true of that generation, that, that it's a very real uh, policy, uh, a very narrow policy with, with broad impacts for, for the state. So following up on this, this uh, discussion idea of, you know, demographics are a long-term trend, uh, very predictable based on all the data that's collected on a continuous basis. Uh, from your position as, as state demographer, do you think our state legislators are taking full advantage of all of the data that is available <laughs> through your office to help craft policy like and, th and to think more strategically uh, about policy, you know, what kind of state do we want to build? Uh, what's what's what should Minnesota look like in twenty five or fifty years? You put those policies in place today, based on the demographic data that's coming in constantly to your office. We could have an amazingly great state, uh, you know, yeah. in the not too distant future. Frankly, I'll say that in a typical year, um, <laughs> the legislature is typically dealing with, and this, this comes from just my observations over the last 10 years, um, they're aware of the demographic changes, they're aware, you know, they've heard me talk about it, they've heard other people talk about it, they're aware of kind of where this thing is heading us, where our demographics are taking us, um, <clears throat> but they're focused on kind of pain points, um, what needs to be taken care of this year, what's the emergency this year, what, what do we absolutely, what fire do we have to put out this year. It was different this session. I think this session looked, and, and for obvious reasons, it, it looked more kind of aspirational. Like, where where are we going? Where do we want to be? Um, and so I think um, typically what we see is they're aware of the demographics, but they're they're not necessarily free to make the decisions that help them align with where the demographics are taking us. Um, you know, 
I say that this last session was more aspirational. It was aspirational for a subset of the state, obviously. The, the part of the state, it was their aspiration to move in this direction. Certainly for another part of the state, it wasn't. But we can see that it's possible <laughs> to, to move in the direction uh, one way or another that's a longer-term trajectory um, you know, when, when those political barriers are, are out of the way. Well, the politics is really interesting. You know, you, you talked about demographics moving slowly, um, but legislators being very sort of immediately focused. And we know from, you know, every bit of public opinion research, the kind of the kind of work that I do, um, that voters are myopic is the term that's often used. They only see six months uh, or so into the past um, and, and are going to hold legislators accountable for things that are happening, you know, last yeah. week. Um, not necessarily, you know, not necessarily rewarding legislators for their their foresight 20 years into the future. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think um, but but that takes us back to kind of the opportunity that we have right now to put it because we're having these disruptions, because we're having kind of policies that can't move forward or programs that can't move forward as is. I think that allows us to have a little bit more foresight. Uh, knowing that the opportunity is there to make some changes. Uh, Dr. Brower, we'll give you the last word. Anything we should have asked you today, but we, we failed to do so. I think you asked me a lot of good questions, but I did want to I did want to just raise up how amazing Northfield was during the 2020 census, oh. because you had a fabulous group. Um, it's called the Complete Count Committee, Northfield's Complete Count Committee. They're volunteer group of people who took it upon themselves to make sure that people knew about the census. And Northfield knocked it out of the park. So I just want to give a, a shout out to those folks who were uh, on that Northfield CCC. <laughs> well, Dr. Susan Brower, our Minnesota State Demographer, thank you so much for joining us today here on Public Policy This Week. Thanks for having me. Please join us next Friday for another interesting public policy conversation on public policy this week. Thank you for joining us today, everybody. This has been Public Policy This Week. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.